Thank you, Jeff, for asking me to preach this morning. It really is an oh, sorry, honor um, to be with you. Uh, I've never taught on comparison before, um, so I've spent the past few weeks just asking God, how have you worked this in my life? Um, I struggled with comparison for years, and it was devastating, and it was paralyzing. You know, I felt trapped and in bondage to the opinions and standards of others. But as I started just remembering incidents and experiences of receiving God's affirmation, of him using people and his word to renew my mind in the truth, I was filled with gratitude and with hope. We do not have to stay stuck in bondage, stuck um, in the trap that is comparison, because if we have Jesus then we have the key to overcoming sin. We can overcome comparison. It's human nature to compare ourselves to others, to look to the left and to the right for affirmation, unless we do something about it. King Solomon, who is the richest man of his time, he was second only to Jesus in wisdom, built one of the seven wonders of the world. He was an author, okay? He was a student of human nature, and he made this observation in Ecclesiastes. He said that man's envy of his neighbor is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Have you ever lost a piece of paper on a windy day? Just as you think you've reached it, it goes in another direction, okay? (laughs) Um, The pursuit to keep up with others, to measure yourself by what others are doing or by what they have, you cannot win. You cannot ever reach it. You cannot stop. Andy Stanley, a pastor of a church in Georgia, says there is no win in comparison. Comparison causes you to ask yourself if you are equal, if you are superior, or if you are inferior. And it's rooted in the sins of fear And in pride, fear of never being enough, never performing enough, never achieving enough, and pride being so focused on yourself that you miss what this life is really for. Comparison will never bring peace. It will only ever bring pride or fear. Okay, it puffs you up or it deflates you. Picture with me up here two lines of people that represent the people that I interact with on a daily basis. Now, I'm a mom, so I run into people at the store, my friends, at church, people on Facebook that I might not even know. But if we go through our lives comparing ourselves to others, here's what happens. I'm better than she is, but not so good as her. Ooh, uh, I'm smarter than him. Oh, but not as smart as her. Okay, wait, I'm skinnier than that person. Oh, but I'm not as fit as her. Okay, so it's this up and down, this roller coaster of up and down. Okay, it's chasing the wind. You're not peaceful. You're not secure. Okay, you're all over the place. There's no win in this. And in the end, comparison will kill you. This is why comparison is so devastating. It kills the you that God created. Okay, that he loves, that he desires to be part of his plan to bring his kingdom about. So if you're so busy trying to beat everyone else or be everyone else, 
then you're not being the you that you were meant to be. We have an enemy, the devil, who will use comparison as a trap to keep you in this cycle of up and down, puffed up and deflated. Okay, and slowly it will cause you to die on the inside. Proverbs 14.20 says, Envy rots the bones. But what if there is a way out? What if there was a way to not get caught in this comparison trap? Let's look at Hebrews 12, 1 through 3. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. The imagery of this passage is of a stadium where a race is going on. The runners who are believers are at one end, lined up. Jesus is at the other end. And the great cloud of witnesses are like the audience, okay, um, and cheering the others on. So we're going to look at this scripture along with some other scriptures and see how our perspective about each of these people listed in this Hebrews passage, how our view of God, how our view of ourselves, and how our view of others are related to this issue of comparison, and how if we believe the truth about God, about ourselves, and about others are the key to stepping out of the comparison trap and into security and peace. So the first question that you need to ask yourself is, how do I view God? What do you believe about him, about his character? What do you believe about what he thinks and expects of you? Hebrews 12.2 tells us to fix our eyes on Jesus, to look at Jesus with accurate eyes, to keep looking, to don't stop, to remember what he's done for us, for who he is, and to think on this over and over and over again. Okay, this passage says that Jesus is the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of God. So he is the author and the perfecter, the originator of our faith, okay? The, the one who causes us to grow and to become more like him. The joy set before him. This is, Jesus' joy was about the restored relationship between God and man. I'm going to explain this a little more in a minute. He endured the cross. Death is the cost of our sin against God. And Jesus paid the debt that we owe. And he sat down at the right hand of God. This means his sacrifice was sufficient. The price was paid. That his death and resurrection established his authority over death. So let's look at another passage. The Apostle Paul's letter to the Galatian church. This is Galatians 4, 4 through 6. But when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive the full rights of sons. Because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So let me break this down for you. All of us are born under the law, and the law is what's written in the Old Testament, the Ten Commandments. But the purpose of the law 
is not to try to get you to achieve perfection, but to show you that you can never achieve perfection. You can never achieve your way back into a relationship with God. The purpose of the law is to show you that you're broken. But God doesn't leave us in our brokenness. The scripture says, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive the full rights of sons. So what this means is that God made a way back into relationship with him. This word redeem means to buy back. Jesus bought back our lives with his, paying the price for our sin with his death on the cross. He buys us back, and then he says we are sons, sons and daughters. Not just with financial rights or access to resources, but children with an intimate relationship. Verse 6 says, Because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. Now, this word Abba is an Aramaic word. It's the same word that Jesus used to talk to God when he was on the cross, when he cried out. And this letter was originally written in Greek. The author of the letter didn't have a word in Greek that fully expressed the intimacy of the language. And so he just left the word Abba in Aramaic. Essentially, it means daddy. Now, that word might make you a little uncomfortable to think of God as daddy, especially if you have a difficult relationship with your own father. But we have to remember that God is the best daddy in the whole world. A daddy who made you, who loves you so much that he sent Jesus, his son, to redeem you, to buy you back so that you could be in relationship with him. And what Paul is trying to explain is that this same intimate language, this same intimate relationship with Jesus that Jesus has with Father God is an invitation for us to have the same intimate relationship with Father God as well. So how do you view God? Do you see him as the one who sent his son to conquer death for you? Do you see Jesus as the one who endured the cross because he loves you and wants you to be with him for eternity? Fix your eyes on Jesus. The next question we're going to ask is, how do you view yourself? So we all have a measuring stick, a person or persons that we try to be more like, okay? That for some of you, it might be a friend or a mentor, maybe your mom or your dad, a business associate, okay? A person that you think, if only I could be like him, if only I had what she had, if only I could get this person's approval, then I would be okay. Okay, so let's go back to Hebrews, which says, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run the race marked out for us. This verse says to run your own race. The race marked out for you. Life is not a race against others to see who will win. As we saw earlier, you cannot win heaven. You cannot achieve heaven. Okay? That this life is about running towards Jesus to see God's kingdom established here on earth. So what's hindering you? What is entangling you to keep you from running your own race? Whose approval do you seek? Whose expectations are you trying to meet? Who is your measuring stick? Are you looking at another runner? Because if you are, you're just going to veer off track. Okay? So let's look at the parable of the talents in Matthew 25. 
A parable is a story that Jesus used to illustrate a point. Okay, and in this particular parable, he's in the middle of telling several parables in a row to explain about the kingdom of God. So it's kind of long, but just stick with me. We're going to pick up in verse 14. It says, again, it, meaning the kingdom of God, will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his property to them. To one he gave five talents of money and to another two talents and to another one talent, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. The man who had received five talents went out at once and put his money to work and gained five more. So also the one with two talents gained two more. But the man who had received the one talent went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received five talents brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five talents. See, I have gained five more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share in your master's happiness. The man with two talents also came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two talents. See, I have gained two more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Then the man who had received one talent came. Master, he said, I knew that you are a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid and went out and hid your talent in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. His master replied, you wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. Well then, you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, I would not have received it back or I would have received it back with interest. So any good storyteller knows that the words you use or don't use are very important to the story. Jesus chose his words carefully. So let's look at the language that's used here. Notice that both the man with the five talents and the man with the two talents both say, Master, you entrusted me to describe what the master had given them. They knew that there was a purpose behind what the master was doing, okay, that he entrusted them with this measure of money to do something with. The man with the one talent does not say, you entrusted me. Instead, he calls the master a hard, greedy, and deceitful man. Now, we know this is not an accurate description of the master, for what master who is hard, greedy, and deceitful would entrust large sums of money to his servants for many years? The one-talent man does not know the master, and because of that, he makes his decision to do nothing out of fear. Okay, when we do not know God or know him accurately, when our eyes are not fixed on Jesus, we begin to make decisions out of fear. Okay, so this goes back to the first question. So let's look at the master's response to the servants. To the five-talent man and to the two-talent man, he says the same thing. Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. To the one-talent man, he says, you wicked, lazy servant. The master is not mad because the man didn't produce anything. The master is mad because the man didn't do anything. So the message becomes clear. It's not about what you have, 
but what you do with what you have. Let me say that again. The master is not mad because the man didn't produce a lot. He's mad because the one-talent man didn't do anything. He put it in a hole in the ground, okay? (laughs) So it's not about what you have, but what you do with what you have. We're not to sit around complaining and comparing about what we've been given. We're to do something with what we've been given. So let me clarify. God's love and your identity are not based on what you do. We cannot earn more of God's love by achieving things in this world. We do not win by achieving things in this world. Instead, God gives us an invitation to be part of his work and to invest in his kingdom on earth. So did you notice that the master doesn't compare the five-talent man and the two-talent man? He doesn't comment on how much or how little they made. In fact, his response is the same to both of them. He calls them good. He calls them faithful. And he says, share in my happiness. Okay, maybe you don't know what you have. Maybe you don't know what God thinks of you. If you don't, then ask him. Search the scriptures, okay? They say you are fearfully and wonderfully made, okay? That you are known and loved by God, that you are worth suffering for, worth dying for. And when you have Jesus, you are clean, you are righteous, and you are forgiven, okay? We've all been given talents, things entrusted to us that we're to do something with. Now, my husband Ronnie would say, Think of yourself as a tackle box full of lines and lures, okay? But since I like books, I'm going to say think of yourself as a library. (laughs) Your books are the things that make up you, your abilities, your gifts, your experiences, your story, your family, okay? This library is made up of both good and bad books, small and large volumes. So maybe you have a bad family background. Maybe you don't feel very talented. Maybe you have a lot of money or really amazing singing voice. Okay, all of us have good and bad. And according to this parable, the approval of the master does not come from what you have, but from what you do with what you have. Okay, not what you begin with, but what you do with it. So are you sharing and using your books? Are you lending them out, okay? Or are they just sitting on the shelf collecting dust? God doesn't want you to be lazy or to bury the parts of you that you'd rather hide. He wants you to use them and invest them in others. And so God's answer to you about your role in your story is going to be different than God's answer to someone else. Because your library doesn't look like anybody else's library. Okay, And the only measure that God wants you to use, the only person that God wants you to look more like is Jesus. The only approval he wants you to seek is his. Fix your eyes on Jesus and run your own race. And so this leads to our third question. How do I view others? Going back to the Hebrews passage, there are two sets of people um, that are mentioned. Okay, the great cloud of witnesses and the other runners who are in the race. In the previous chapter of Hebrews, the author has written about what's been dubbed the hall of faith. Okay, which is just a list of people who've lived for God and who've run their race and believed for great things. These people are, have already finished, okay, and they are now cheering on the current runners. 
So we already know what the runners should be doing. They're supposed to have their eyes fixed on Jesus, running their own race. We're not to be looking around at the crowd, okay, or at the other runners, okay, because they should be in your peripheral vision. If they're in your focused vision, you're going to go off course, okay? But they are in your peripheral vision for a reason. Once again, the language is really important here. Okay, they are there to motivate us, to run the best race we can, to encourage us to run better, to run smarter. So let's look at 1 Corinthians 12. In this passage, the writer is comparing the body of Christ, meaning the church, to a human body. And let's pick up at verse 14. Now the body is not made up of one part, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body. It would not for that reason cease to be part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body. It would not for that reason cease to be part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has arranged the parts of the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. There are a few things I want to point out about this passage. Each person or part is important to the whole. Just because you don't feel like you belong or decide that you don't belong doesn't mean you don't belong. God arranged the parts as he wanted, not on a whim, but because there's a plan for the whole. So here's what the enemy wants you to think. I'm just a middle toe. My library isn't very exciting. I have nothing to offer. Why, God, did you make me a middle toe? I don't want to be a toe. I want to be an arm. I will be an arm. Okay? And here's what happens. The toe stops operating as a toe, and that affects the other toes, and that affects the foot, and that affects the whole body. Okay? Have you ever hurt your toe? It hurts like crazy, right? So this is just my theory. But I think God allows your toe to hurt like crazy to remind you that toes are important. (laughs) Now remember, the toes decided to become an arm. Okay? Now can you imagine a toe trying to do what an arm was designed to do? It's laughable, right? The toe could never do what an arm was designed to do. And it will only fatigue and eventually fail. When I became a new mom, I started looking around at the other moms to try to figure out what I should be doing. Some of them were still mentoring six-plus people. Their babies were sleeping anywhere and everywhere. They were going on lots of outings, and they still had tons of energy. And so I was like, okay, guess that's what I'm supposed to be doing. So I started trying to do that. Well, I am a high introvert, okay, who thrives on structure and who recharges by being alone. You can probably guess what happened, right? It didn't take long before I was stressed out. I was angry all the time. I was canceling meetings. I felt like I was failing everyone. And the truth was I was failing to do the things that I should have been doing and that I'd agreed to be doing. I was dying, okay? I was trying to operate as someone that God had never created me to be, okay? So when we look to others to try to define us, and when we try to operate outside of who we are, we will definitely fatigue and eventually fail. 
So what we need to do is move others from our focus to our peripheral vision. So how you do this is to ask yourself, do I allow others to defeat me or to motivate me? Okay, do they cause me to run away from Jesus or do they cause me to run towards Jesus? Okay, when I was focused on others, I thought, God, why did you make me an introvert? I'll never be able to mentor six people. And, you know, this kind of thinking took me away from Jesus' purposes. But when I felt the Lord gently just turning my head back to focus on him, to be fixed on him, and you know what he said to me? I'm not asking you to mentor six people. Wait, you're not? <laughs> what, what are you asking of me? And you know what he said? Two people. This is my race. He didn't make me to mentor six people, but he did make me to mentor. Okay? And sometimes it's hard. Sometimes it's hard to run your own race, to look like you're going too fast or too slow, like you're doing too much or too little. Sometimes in order to obey God, to be and do what you were created to do, you might look like a failure to others. You might feel like you're failing other people, okay, failing their expectations. Let's take Noah. Okay, when he lived on the earth, it had, rain had never fallen from the sky. But God told him to build a big boat because a lot of rain was going to fall from the sky, enough rain to cover the whole earth. And so the people thought he was crazy, but Noah's measuring stick was God. He sought to please God and not to please people. Okay, he built his boat. And when the rains came, he saved his family. A lady named Jackie Pullinger, at the age of 22, okay, applied to several different missionary organizations. All of them rejected her. All of them. Most people would have assumed that they didn't have what it takes and would have stopped there. But she knew that God has spoken. She knew her race. So she got on a boat and asked God where she should get off. And she landed in Hong Kong. And Jackie went on to establish a ministry where she saw hundreds of people freed from gangs, from prostitution, from drugs. Okay, Jackie's measuring stick was God. She chose to ignore the rejections of people, the expectations of people, and to continue on with what God had said about her race. So when your answer to the question, how do I view others, changes from a measuring stick to a motivator towards God, from your focus to your peripheral vision, then there is a release. Okay, you're released from striving to look like someone else, from doing the things that God has not asked of you. And you release others to walk in their identity. Okay, when you operate as you are meant to operate, you are working for the whole as members of one body. And when other parts of the body succeed, you can celebrate their success. You can celebrate their accomplishments, celebrate their differences. You can bless it and say, this is a win for the kingdom of God, a win for the whole body of Christ. You can rejoice with others in their race. You can be at peace with your own race, your own role, okay, your own position in the body. 
the toe can say, yay arm, way to go eyes, okay? You can look at the prophet and say, thank you for encouraging us. You can look at the administrator and say, thank you for organizing us. Okay, you can look at the evangelist and say, thank you for fearlessly sharing the gospel. Okay, and as a toe, you can say, thank you, God, for helping me bring stability as we run after the kingdom of God. So to conclude, let's look at Hebrews 12, 1 through 3 again. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Now I'm going to show you how to apply this, these verses, okay? How to repent and how to declare the truth over everyday situations where we would want to compare ourselves to others and where our enemy, the devil, wants to trap us and kill us by using comparison. Okay, so you're a dad who works hard to support his family, but there never seems to be enough money. And you start thinking, he's got a good job, and he just got another promotion. I hate my job. And this is the way it's always going to be. Work, work, work. Never enough. Stop. Say to yourself, comparison will kill me. How do I view God? Fix your eyes on Jesus. Lord, forgive me for comparing myself to my coworkers. Help me to remember that you love me and that you will provide for me. How do I view myself? Run your own race. Lord, thank you for my current job. Help me to work to the best of my ability and to trust you to promote me in your time. How do I view others? Motivators. Okay. Lord, help me to celebrate with my friend and to have humility to learn from him. So say you're a student and you make excellent grades. You win awards, you chair committees, okay, but you cannot do enough to please your dad. And you start thinking, I wish my dad loved me. I wish he saw me. I wish that I had the kind of relationship that my friend has with her parents. But stop. There is no win in comparison. How do I view God? Fix your eyes on Jesus. Lord, forgive me. I repent for finding my identity in my dad's approval. Help me to know that you love me, not for what I do, but because I am your child. How do I view myself? Run your own race. Lord, teach me to work hard, to use my intelligence for good, but to rest in the knowledge that you are pleased with me no matter what, no matter what I accomplish. Let your approval be enough. How do I view others? Motivators. Lord, forgive me for being jealous of my friend. Show me how to love my dad well, to release him from my own expectations of how he should be. Help me to initiate relationship with him, even though it hurts. You're a mom of three kids 
whose body doesn't look like it did 10 years ago. And you start thinking, all I want to do is sit in my beach chair in my cover-up. <laughs> I wish I could look like that lady over there with the, with the tan skin and the taut stomach. Okay, so this is a real one for me, all right? I struggle, <laughs> I struggle with an eating disorder for years, and this one crops up now and again. But stop. Comparison will kill me. How do I view God? Fix your eyes on Jesus. Lord, forgive me for believing the lie that life is about me. Help me to remember that this life is about you and your kingdom. How do I view myself? Run your own race. Lord, forgive me for finding my identity in my appearance. Thank you for allowing me to birth three babies and help me to celebrate what my body has done and remember that my kids are worth a changed body. How do I view others, motivators? Lord, let me not miss out on a fun time with my kids for fear of not measuring up. Help me to take care of myself, but to know that heaven is near and this body is made to work for kingdom purposes. So say you're a young adult and you're not yet married, or maybe you are married and you can't have children, and you start thinking, when will it be my turn, God? Have you forgotten about me? Stop. There is no win in comparison. How do you view God? Fix your eyes on Jesus. Lord, forgive me for believing that you do not see me. You went to every length so that I might be with you. You do not hold out or hold back good things from me. How do I view myself? Run your own race. Lord, help me to trust the plans you have for me. Help me to believe that what you have is better than what I could plan for myself. How do I view others, motivators? Lord, help me to rejoice with my friends who have spouses and children. Help me to find comfort in you, and then help me to comfort others who are also suffering. So freedom from comparison does not mean that you will never be tempted to compare yourself again. Okay? What it does mean is that you're not trapped by it, that you catch it, and you walk away quickly. So I have two dogs, and they stink a lot. Okay, so when I first walk in the house, sometimes the first thing I smell is the dogs, okay? But if I'm in the house with them for a while, I become accustomed to the smell, okay? And comparison is a lot like that. A lot of times we're so used to operating in comparison that we, have, we become accustomed to it. We become used to it, okay? We're totally unaware of how much it really permeates our thinking. But when you begin to practice this process, okay, of repentance, of claiming the truth and speaking the truth over yourself, okay, that when a comparison thought comes into your head, it smells, it reeks, okay? You recognize, you recognize it, at, excuse me, as soon as the door is opened, okay? And then you're able to walk out, okay? You're able to walk out of that trap that is comparison, and into God's security and peace, okay? And into the freedom that God offers you every day. So right now, um, I'd like to invite the band up.
and we're just going to take a few minutes and respond to God. So whether you are in bondage to comparison or whether you just have twinges of wanting to be like someone else, God wants you to walk in freedom. He doesn't want 90% freedom. He wants 100% freedom. Okay? So ask God, how have you been comparing yourself to others? How have your eyes not been fixed on Jesus? How have you been running someone else's race? And how have you allowed others to defeat you or to turn you away from God? So let's respond to God's invitation to overcome comparison. <laughs>